Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking with some recent events. And uh, there's been quite a lot going on. And as always, the topic timestamps and links to the things I'm talking about, etc. will be in the show description. So especially try and do that for these recent events because people might want to just check out a specific bit and you don't want to be sifting through like over an hour's worth of me chuntering on about other things. So that's why I always try my best to do those uh, timestamps for the, the recent events. So first of all, uh, there's been an update on the US UAP related legislation working its way through the system uh, currently, which I've been following and talking about a lot on the pod uh, over the last uh, six months or so, really, as it's been on its convoluted path to eventually being signed into law. So if you've been listening for a while, you might remember a breakdown uh, that I did a couple of months back now on the proposed UAP related language in, in the legislation. And um, I'll try and keep a long story short, but there was a uh, various wording in the NDAA, that's the National Defence Authorisation Act for uh, fiscal year 23, and the Intelligence Author- Authorisation Act, uh, IAA, for the fiscal year 23, and these things related directly to UAP. And um, the things that were included in that proposed wording included things like renaming this uh, UAP office that's been through various iterations over the course of the last uh, year or two to the the proposed rename was to be calling it the UAP Joint Programme Office, UAP JPO. And it looks as though everything was going in, in that direction for that name change. We'll come back to that shortly. Also mandating regular reports to congressional committees and also to the public setting up secure mechanism to allow people with information on any off the books you know special access programs or ufo related efforts to come forward to congress with that information as well as certain protections for those who do so Uh, also was the setting up of a core group with all government and intelligence and military groups and departments represented to collaborate on looking into this issue um, there was a report dating back to 1947 on basically all things UAP related, including disinfo efforts by the IC and whatnot. And that report was to be compiled by uh, the Comptroller General part of the Government Accountability Office, like a government watchdog, essentially. Um, basically, the whole thing was like a dream wish list of what we want on this topic, you know, if you want progress from the government disclosure angle. And... Um, I said at the time that this was proposed language and it could change as the process went along. Now, the signs all kind of pointed to the language remaining largely intact, you know, up to this point over the last couple of days, uh, where it has changed a little bit. But many people who've been covering this on UFO Twitter, etc., writing articles, have stated that in all probability it would remain largely intact before being signed into law. The path that this has to go on eventually has to be cleared by the Senate, by the House, and eventually ends up on the President's desk to be signed into law. 
And uh, just yesterday, at the time of recording this, uh, the final version of this language had been confirmed and now just needs to get voted on by the House and then it'll be well on its way to ending up on the President's desk to be signed into law. So at the time of recording, though, this vote actually didn't take place yet. The House actually ended up postponing its previously planned vote on the NDAA yesterday. Uh, but it looks like that will take place today now, uh, which is today is Thursday, the 8th of December. Um, so that apparently is going to be taking place today. And if, if it does, then this legislation, as in the form that I'm going to be discussing today, is well on the way to making it to the president's desk to be signed into law. Uh, the intelligence authorization bill, by the way, uh, was actually wrapped into the NDAA. So I'd, I've discussed a little bit about the wording in the NDAA, a little bit about the wording in the IAA, and basically the the IAA was kind of incorporated into the NDAA. Uh, and then in the, in the following months, members of the Congressional Security Committees, the Armed Services and Intelligence Committees, uh, in closed-door negotiations were the ones that were making these changes to the wording. And these are actually reflected in this latest version of the text, which I'm about to discuss some of the main changes and, you know, dilutions really to some of the initial very exciting language there has been some dilutions i'm just going to throw that out there now <laughs> don't be too disappointed there's still a lot of good things in there uh, if you're interested in in this legislation um and, and what it might lead to but there has been some changes and, and dilutions going on so first of all it would appear that the arrow name is actually going to be retained rather than that change to the joint program office and it appears to me that 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 that's the way it's going so rather than change the name again to this joint program they're going to keep arrow and let's be honest arrow does sound cooler than jpo so i'm i'm fine with it i'm cool with that um and that that refers to the all domain anomaly resolution office arrow a a r o pronounced like arrow as if as in bow and arrow i suppose you could say and um as a not a bad name really quite snappy and the good thing about that name is it's a catch-all isn't it you've got the all domain anomaly resolution office so again i think as we'll come to in a second um there's been some specific changes to some of this wording to probably i would suggest to avoid riddle outs so for example one of the things is that aerial has been changed to anomalous again some of the previous wording included things like um unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena which is a bit a bit convoluted unnecessarily uh, I, I would suggest and basically they've completely changed that now to just anomalous so when whenever there's mention of uap it's unidentified anomalous phenomena which is again probably makes more sense it's a bit more concise and it kind of covers everything in that in that uh, wording so again unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena it does kind of limit it to things within the aerospace realm or the undersea realm and now just unidentified anomalous phenomena also covers a lot of other areas as well perhaps also including uh, space you know which is something that's definitely and uh, we're going to be talking about later on as well to do with things being detected in space i think that's a very significant uh, point but anyway section uh, 1673A1B 
contains new language that specifically defines the areas of interest uh, for this Arrow office to be looking into as, quote, any activity or program related to unidentified anomalous phenomena, including with respect to material retrieval, material analysis, reverse engineering, research and development, detecting and tracking, developmental or operational testing, and security protections and enforcement, unquote. So it's just very interesting to see there, very specifically laid out, that this is going to be looking at these kinds of areas, including things like crash retrieval, material analysis, and reverse engineering. So very interested to, to see that in there. And it's good that it's laid out so clearly. Also mentioned is if Arrow receives through the secure system a disclosure about a UAP related restricted access program that had not been previously disclosed to the Congressional Defence or Intelligence Committees. Uh, it says, quote, the Secretary of Defence shall report such disclosure to such committees and congressional leadership within 72 hours. Unquote. So that's a very specific requirement as well, that this doesn't just need to be done, that these um, congressional committees and congressional leadership are going to be informed about anything that gets reported to the office, but it also puts a time frame on it. So it's got to be done pretty quickly as well within a, within a few days. So that's, that's another interesting thing that I noticed in, in some of this wording. Uh, the bill actually retains some of the... Um, guidance about reprisals against employees or contractors who do disclose any uap related information through the the secure mechanism the secure system as well however it does kind of leave that a little bit how that's exactly going to work it sort of leaves it to the secretary of defense and the director of national intelligence to to decide rather than specifically laying out exactly how that's going to work like it did in some of the previous um wording and you could say that's a slight dilution as well um for example there was a private cause of action to whistleblowers uh, that was mentioned in the previous bill um and that has actually been dropped from this particular wording now i wasn't exactly familiar with the, what that phrase means i'm not a lawyer so you know i do what i can to understand these things so i did um, google it and have a quick look around Apparently, in the legal system, a cause of action is a set of facts or legal theory that gives an individual or entity the right to seek a legal remedy against another. So that specific cause of action being mentioned in the previous proposed legislation essentially would have just laid out a bit of a clearer path for people to protect themselves against any reprisal or any any unfortunate, um, you know, repercussions that they may have felt as a result of coming forward with any of this information the fact is at the end of the day i'm i'm not a lawyer so i can't obviously advise on how effective these whistleblower protections and and whether or not the the secure mechanism for people to come forward to this arrow office are going to be sufficient to actually you know convince people to do that and there, there has been a lot of discussion from various people who are prominent within the UFO topic about whether or not these whistleblowers will actually feel protected enough to come forward. Apparently, we keep hearing that there's, you know, the, these people are queuing up. You know, there's there's literally like a, a horde of whistleblowers ready to come forward to this office. And again, very important to bear in mind, this mechanism that's being set up is not for 
um, p- these people to actually spill the beans, you know, in terms of like going on podcasts and things like that. So we do have to bear in mind that that is the case. And it's also very important as well to mention that whilst the mechanisms are still required to be created to enable people to come forward and relevant protections to be there for these people who come forward with information, there is actually a specific section where it says, uh, quote, protection of systems, programs and activity. The secretary shall ensure that the mechanism for authorised reporting is established under paragraph one, prevents the unauthorized public reporting or compromise of classified military and intelligence systems programs and related activity including all categories and levels of special access and compartmented access programs unquote and and it goes on to basically talk about that in a little bit more detail as well but it's basically you know there's going to be specific measures in place to make sure that what gets reported to this office under this secure mechanism doesn't get out to the public if it contains certain classified um, bits of information, which again is, is logical. I, I would suggest we're not opening Pandora's box here and just letting it all hang out. We're talking about doing this in a responsible way and whatnot. And at the end of the day, Congress and these congressional committees uh, are the ones that we really want this information to get to. And in the long run, we may end up finding more about what gets revealed to this office but that will be down the line again anybody who's expecting that this legislation gets signed into law and then the very next day you know there's a press conference held and they unveil uh, the existence of these these programs it's gonna it's not really gonna work like that so we have to you know manage expectations a little bit there Anyway, moving on, the other thing that's very significant that I had my eye on in the previous legislation was the the Comptroller General, which was, I I touched on this a little bit earlier, basically um, the Comptroller General within the Government Accountability Office was supposed to do a report dating back to 1947 about basically a lot of things, the whole history of the the government and intelligence community's involvement within the UAP uh, topic. The thing is, though, that the the Comptroller General, according to this new wording, is actually not doing the report now directly. They're just overseeing the report, which is to actually be conducted by the Arrow Office. In this um, new bill, the responsibility for the historical study and the report that comes of that is is actually placed with Arrow specifically, with the GAO just performing a an audit. And a, and a congressional briefing functions. Now, I worry a bit about the capability of Arrow to actually undertake something like that because if you think about what actually, you know, a report going all the way back to 1947 to deal with like the potential, you know, disinformation efforts that have been undertaken, successful or unsuccessful, by the intelligence community over the years and a summary of the entire government and intelligence community involvement in this topic to to do that you're going to need some serious resources and staff to 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 do that a good job of that um so i do worry whether arrow are going to be able to do that and also whether arrow are going to have the clout basically to be able to access the information they need to actually do that report but it'll all remain to be seen at the end of the day but one thing that is quite interesting is that the scope of this historical record report if anything has been extended been broadened a little bit 
and it actually goes all the way back now to 1945, January the 1st, 1945. And um, the report is to include, quote, a compilation and itemization of the key historical record of the involvement of the intelligence community with unidentified anomalous phenomena, including any program or activity that was protected by restricted access that has not been explicitly and clearly reported to Congress. Successful or unsuccessful efforts to identify and track unidentified anomalous phenomena and any efforts to obfuscate, manipulate public opinion, hide or otherwise provide incorrect, unclassified or classified information about unidentified anomalous phenomena or related activities, unquote. And the actual findings of the study itself are apparently to be presented by Arrow to the Congressional Defence Committees and Intelligence Committees and Leadership in roughly a year and a half, from my understanding of it. And it's not clear exactly whether there will be a public version of that report, uh, but it is interesting to see the scope of what that report is going to consist of. And it's good to know that Congress and these various committees are going to be informed of that. But whether or not the public get to see that report is unknown. It'll probably be something that a 95-year-old John Greenwald will be requesting and finally get hold of <laughs> in many decades from now. But, it, I mean, that would make for some very interesting reading, wouldn't it? But, again, the key thing is that Congress are now aware of this. There's people pushing for increased transparency. And the fact that this legislation is, is, is going to be actually generating a report of this nature and getting that to Congress, very, very interesting and definitely a... Uh, step in the right direction and it's important to note as well that that report that i'm talking about there is actually distinctly different to the regular reports which are going to be generated given to congress the various committees and available to the public so those are still going ahead it's not as though this replaces those other reports or anything so just a lot to take in there really quite a few changes quite a few dilutions um Another thing, just to finish off on this before we move on to a different topic, is that the there was mention of a core group, which was basically, it was in the previous legislation, and uh, this core group was, um, I'll, I'll just read a quote from the original uh, proposed wording, and this is actually from the S4503 um, wording. It says, core group, not later than 180 days after the enactment of the Intelligence Authorization Act for FY23, the director of the office and various other people um, shall jointly establish a core group within the office that shall include, at a minimum, representatives with all relevant and appropriate security clearances from the following CIA, NSA, Department of Energy, National Reconnaissance Office, and NRO. Uh, the Air Force, the Space Force, the D Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and this core group would basically be uh, in existence within that office, which was, uh, you know, back then was planned to be changed to the JPO, but now apparently it's uh, going to be remaining as Arrow. Now the wording's changed slightly. There's no mention of a core group anymore, but it says that. Um, the detailees is the way that they put it. There needs to be detailees from elements of the intelligence community. And it says uh, the heads of the Central Intelligence Agency, the 
Defence Intelligence Agency, National Security Agency, Department of Energy, or basically all of the same um, departments and everything that was in the previous wording. I won't read them all out again. I'm sure you get the idea and such other elements of the intelligence community as the director of the office considers appropriate may provide to the office a detailee of the element to be physically located at the office. So it's basically saying rather than a core group to be formed, it's saying that each of those various government agencies, intelligence agencies, etc., um, may provide to that office, the Arrow office, a detailee. So somebody who's basically got assigned responsibilities. Um, and it does say that this detailee will be physically located at the office. I'm just not exactly sure there where if that's as clear in terms of you have to provide somebody and that person is going to be a member of this core group. It's still basically getting it the same thing all of these various intelligence agencies and various people from the Department of Energy, etc., all have to provide a detailee. But I'm not sure if it goes as far uh, in terms of requiring those people to be of a certain level and security clearance like it did in the previous drafted language, which made sure that that was the case. So is it going to be as effective? We'll have to just wait and see at the end of the day. But that's about all there is to add on that for now and uh, I'll, I'll provide any any further updates on all that legislative stuff as time goes along Le leg legislative tough one to say um but yeah hopefully that's helpful anyway for anybody else who's been following this and we'll move on now to the next topic okay so in this last weekend just past which was the saturday the 3rd of december there was an event held in new york uh, as you may have heard me talking about on the podcast over the last few weeks. So it was an inquiry into anomalous experiences and the phenomenon. And um, I was pleased to see a few of the listeners who had also purchased tickets for this and were in attendance uh, and for the for the live stream side of things of the event. And uh, first of all, I just want to say a huge well done to J. Christopher King, James Iandoli, and all the rest of the crew for putting on such a, an incredible event and Priscilla and, and Kelly Chase who are also involved and on hosting duties and Jay did a really good job of, of keeping in touch with everybody on the live stream and um, any little hiccups and things, technical hitches got sorted out very, very swiftly and it was just great to see that attention to detail. So a great job from everybody involved there, making sure it all ran smoothly behind the scenes. I know these things are pretty stressful to do, so uh, hats off to all involved, especially with the live stream side of things. I mean, that must be a hell of a thing to juggle you know being there in, in real life trying to keep up and say hello to everyone and also dealing with all the technical hitches and things as well yeah incredible and it all ran very very smoothly uh, overall it was just a, a very um, pleasant experience as a live stream viewer so here's a little bit of a rundown of the event for those who weren't able to catch it I'm not going to go into like a really detailed breakdown of each guest or anything like that. Um, I, I believe that the videos from all of the speakers at the event are going to be eventually available on YouTube over the coming weeks. So definitely worth having a look at the uh, Inquire Anomalous YouTube channel and keep your eyes there. And I think the videos from the previous event are also up there already. So the whole thing started off with some introductions, etc., and this was followed by Je Jeffrey Kripal, who was giving the first talk of the day, 
and then we were treated to excellent talks by Ralph Blumenthal, Whitley Strieber, uh, Sharon Hewitt, Rollett, Leslie Keane, and finally, Christopher Mellon. So I've been to a few conferences over the last couple of years, but this was actually the first time I've attended a live streamed conference. So I didn't really know what to expect, but I, I really enjoyed it. And it was nice to be able to take in these talks from the comfort of my own home, you know, sat on the sofa with a beer, bit of popcorn. And uh, I was very pleased to see that the, the live stream option was available because there, there wouldn't have been any way I could have possibly got there to New York. Um, but I would love to try an event, you know, in in person one day in the future. But obviously, practicalities and financial resources somewhat limiting at the moment in terms of being able to actually go out to New York. So it was great to be able to actually participate in the live stream. I just think it's really cool that they offer that as an option. So going back to the actual speakers, Jeffrey Kripal is the Associate Dean of the Faculty and Graduate Programs in the School of the Humanities and the J. Newton Razor chair in philosophy and religious thought at rice university he's also the associate director of the center for theory and research at the esalen institute in big sur california uh, jeff's also the author of 10 books including the superhumanities historical precedents moral objections new realities and in that particular book he explores kind of what would happen if we reimagined the humanities as the superhumanities, if we acknowledged and celebrated the undercurrent of the fantastic within our humanistic disciplines, that entirely new cultural worlds and meanings would become possible. That is basically Jeffrey Kripal's vision for the future to revive the suppressed dimension of the superhumanities, which consists of rare but real altered states of knowledge. That have driven the creative processes of many of our most revered authors artists and activists so that's according to the introduction uh, i found online for jeffrey kripal and, I, and i've heard kripal on a few podcasts recently and i was really interested to listen to his take here at the conference and it was a really interesting talk and to me it's an area that i really find fascinating because some of, of you know what you might call paranormal phenomena intersect with the UFO phenomenon. Not only not only that, but you know, how these phenomena have shaped the course of human history and development over the millennia recent, really. And you know, I think essentially what Jeffrey Kripal is, is talking about here is is that kind of thing. And are there certain aspects of our culture that have been influenced by these kind of strange phenomena and, and uh, you know, paranormal events, essentially? That, that's at least what I take from it. And accepting some of these things and investigating them, studying them, rather than sweeping them under the rug because they're a, an uncomfortable truth, there are mysteries within our reality, you know, it could actually help us to understand perhaps more about the greater reality that we actually inhabit. You know, often it can be the case that if we don't really fully understand something, it, it, it freaks people out. It, you know, it makes people question the current, you know, paradigms. And, and rather than sweep that away and try and explain it away and debunk these kinds of things, why not explore it? Because a lot can be discovered from doing that. And I think quite similar themes were explored during uh, Sharon Hewitt Rowlett's talk with her own particular interpretation of all of that. She had some very interesting ideas about how 
coincidence and synchronicity and even dreams could all play into the reality that we inhabit and how all these things could be connected obviously these kind of discussions are a fair way sort of further down the rabbit hole than than you know purely nuts and, and bolts ufo analysis um but i think that's what was really interesting about this conference is that there's a kind of equal measure of of both aspects really the the kind of the wider picture including all kinds of anomalous phenomena and how that intersects with the more you know nuts and bolts kind of approach and and the the legislation to, to get to the bottom of what the government know about all of this and it was kind of a really balanced picture of what was presented at this conference by the the choice of the you know selection of the speakers and what what each of them brought to the table i do tend to think that when you start looking into the ufo phenomenon you know some of these you know destinations that you end up at are kind of inevitable that you're at least going to you know touch on these things and, and i think it's safe to say that it's perhaps not my main focus of interest the 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 wider phenomena and and the consciousness side of things but it is definitely something that i'm i'm you know interested to learn more about and and to to take in these these other you know viewpoints i think the way that my personal like thought goes on this kind of thing i'm more inclined to investigate what's known by the u.s government and pushing for government transparency and, and that side of things um and i suppose you know dealing with the the mystery that's actually in the nuts and bolts reality that we do in interpret i'm completely open to the possibility that our reality is a construct and maybe a deeper reality exists below that surface level that we perceive etc but i think i'm personally just you know my the way that i approach it i'm more concerned about getting to the center of the labyrinth within that surface level reality that we do perceive you know but having said that i do think that if you follow the data where it leads as they say uh you end up looking in some quite strange places and it's not entirely unexpected you know that if you consider how advanced non-human intelligence may actually be if they were in contact with humanity you know it's not entirely unexpected that some of that might you know be interacting with humans and our experiences of, of our reality in some ways that are a bit uncomfortable and, and don't necessarily all add up if we're dealing with an intelligence which is perhaps tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years more advanced than we currently are it sort of only stands to reason that that non-human intelligence would be significantly more capable of understanding the reality that we perceive that the nuts and bolts surface level reality that i was just talking about some kind of super advanced non-human intelligence would probably have a lot better of an idea about how all of that works and you know perhaps even any further layers of reality below that surface level that we perceive or above it however you want to think of it and you know that kind of type of non-human intelligence you know i would suggest that it's a fair assumption and it would stand to reason that that very advanced non-human intelligence perhaps could even use technology that interfaces with a deeper level of reality than what we do so you know perhaps this could include a deeper understanding of what synchronicities are and dreams and what coincidences actually are and you know perhaps some deeper understanding of what life even is and how consciousness actually works and where does it originate from and you know coming along with that 
could also include a technology that's able to manipulate reality and, and consciousness itself or perhaps a certain level of consciousness that can do that without any need for technology or perhaps there even comes a point where technology and consciousness are no longer you know separate and when you start to think about all these possibilities and again when you consider how much human technology has advanced in the last you know 20 or 30 years it doesn't really seem that outrageous to think that in a thousand years 10 20 000 years from now the level of technology will just appear to be magic as the old saying goes so if if another non-human intelligence has developed this kind of capability it sort of stands to reason that they would interact with humans in some very strange ways as it as it would appear to us now it probably wouldn't be strange to them at all and this could include the various contact modalities as they say it wouldn't necessarily be as simple as a metallic saucer you know with biological beings coming down having an interaction with you on that basis it's probably much more complicated than that it could be interaction and communication through dreams it could be a hijacking of consciousness it could be some kind of complete manipulation of the reality that you inhabit and for all of these reasons i find the work of people like Jeffrey Kripal and some of the things that, that Sharon Rowlett was talking about to be absolutely fascinating. And I love listening to the speeches at, at the, the conference, as you can tell from the sorts of things I've just been rambling on about, I, I had a lot of food for thought, you know, um, given to me as a result of watching these, um, these, these talks. And uh, I also noticed on Twitter that, uh, Sharon Rowlett got a quite a rave response from a few of the people who I've seen commenting as well and um, just some very very interesting thought-provoking um, discussion has kind of arisen from the back of, of those presentations those talks so just great to see and um, Whitley Strieber gave a really interesting talk about some of his own personal experiences and I, I think it's always very deeply affecting to hear Whitley talk about how his experiences have negatively affected his life and um, I, I've talked on the podcast and off the podcast recently about um, hearing his recent talks and how it's made me kind of consider the trauma that certain people had to endure and, and that the ridicule. And, and, and for some reason, as Whitley has said, it, it still seems to be kind of accepted in society that, you know, these experiences are open to ridicule and it's it's kind of the last you know, group of, of people who are victims who it's okay to openly mock. And listening to Whitley really brings that into sharp focus. You know, Whitley has described it as, as that, the, the one of the only marginalised group that left that it's okay to ridicule. You know, quite a big question really as to why that is the case and, and how it's possible that somebody who is relaying experiences that have greatly dramatically affected them in some cases essentially they've been you know sexually assaulted abducted and these are terrifying experiences not pleasant at all and very difficult for somebody to go through and recover from and the thought of somebody actually relating experiences of that nature and then being ridiculed and mocked you know is, is very sad really and that's something that i've been reminded of while listening to whitley talk recently and you know on podcasts and uh, at this uh, uh, at this event as well and uh, i mentioned this while i was on the uh, calling all beans british invasion show recently as well that i think it's kind of an area that should be seen as a bit more of a priority really the um you know the the the, the, the victims of this really the people who've been severely affected 
you know, by whatever this, whatever this turns out to be, you know, there's no question that these people have been very significantly affected. And luckily, there's some excellent groups set up, including the Experiencer Group itself, which was actually founded by J. Christopher King, who's one of the uh, uh, co-organisers of this event. And it's just good to see that, that people have, you know, people that have had these traumatic experiences can at least have the support of other people who've been through similar things. So the remaining speakers were Leslie Kane, who gave a really interesting talk about various things really but one of the very interesting parts of that were some of the clips that she played of the series that she's been working on with a very uh, very high budget and it was actually produced apparently by uh, cnn it's a cnn series um, and it's not actually been cancelled it was just postponed apparently according to leslie herself and it was because of a merger cnn merger which basically created a lot of reshuffling and a lot of um you know upheaval basically and but apparently it is going to be uh, coming out uh, in 2023 apparently so we'll see if that actually all does uh, you know go go ahead but um there's been a lot of conspiracy talk around why it was you know shelved or cancelled or whatever people had been saying but but according to leslie it wasn't shelved to silence the you know the ufo community or anything like that it was just purely the network was bought all of their existing projects were put on ice until they figured out what they were going to do and apparently their streaming platform was affected by this merger and whatnot as well so apparently it's still coming out and it's coming out at some point in 2023 so what Leslie actually did during her talk was actually to be able to play some of the clips that had previously never been seen and there were some really interesting sneak previews of what this documentary is going to be like uh, so one of the things was Helene Cooper who's actually one of the co-authors of the bombshell New York Times article and somebody who's not, not really spoken very much on the public record about her involvement in all of that she was there in the documentary actually giving commentary giving an interview and basically telling her side of the story so what we're saying here is that there's kind of untold previously untold parts of the narrative um you know in in this that we're going to hear from that we haven't heard from before and that's going to be really interesting to see in more detail when the documentary series is eventually out uh, and another thing that was quite interesting that th there was an interview with chad underwood the uh, the man who actually intercepted the the tic tac and uh, captured the the flare video that we all know and love and again you know that's it's not somebody who usually talks to the camera very much outside of the interview that he did with Jeremy Corbell and a couple of other bits but you know not really somebody that usually does the rounds on everybody's podcast or anything like that so it'll be very interesting to hear a bit more from Chad Underwood and um We'll get to see that hopefully when this documentary comes out and there may be some other bits in there that could add a little bit more colour to the, the, the Nimitz incident itself, which is something I'm a big fan of, as I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast will be aware. So, yeah, Leslie's talk was actually followed by somebody that I was extremely interested to hear from, and that is Christopher Mellon. So for anybody who's not familiar, Mellon is the former... Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for Intelligence in the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations, and somebody who's been very active in helping to shape the legislation going through at the moment in the US, which I was talking about earlier on, of course. And um, Christopher Mellon is, is, again, not somebody that you really 
hear from very often you know he's not somebody who does many appearances on podcasts and things and his appearances at conferences are actually fairly rare too even though he's done a few recently and it was brilliant to be able to see Chris Mellon in this setting and he answered some of the questions that uh, about the state of where we are at this point in time and the segment basically started with with Leslie actually asking Chris a few a few uh, questions and going into a few points and I thought Leslie did a really good job of focusing on the key areas that Chris would be most suited to talking about you know at the present moment essentially the hot topic areas that everybody wanted Chris to talk about Leslie really picked up on that and asked him the important questions so some of these questions were around the whistleblowers and the whistleblower protection and so on and which is currently working its way through the US legislative system and also the UAP report which was expected on October the 31st and as we all know is now significantly delayed in terms of the whistleblower protection in particular there has been a lot of talk about whether or not that whistleblower protection goes far enough recently with some people claiming to have spoken to some whistleblowers. I think Ross Coltart had mentioned this in particular um, and the whistleblowers apparently had expressed concerns that the legislation doesn't go far enough to protect them and that they're not particularly hopeful about the current situation with that legislation. So it's quite interesting to hear Chris's viewpoint on this as he was significantly more optimistic about this. Now, the thing is, with Christopher Mellon's comments on this in particular, you have to bear in mind that a lot of this legislative language has, has, has been you know, worked on by Christopher Mellon and that the reason that the language takes the form that it does is because he's crafted that language according to what the whistleblowers or the potential whistleblowers actually want. So Chris has had a hand in this. He's not personally written the entire thing, but obviously he has helped to influence the, the form that the wording uh, was proposed as. Don't forget, Christopher Mellon is quoted as saying that he's aware of multiple whistleblowers who are looking to come forward. And he's also said in the past that these whistleblowers are not Lou Elizondo, as Lou did not have direct experience working on crash retrieval or reverse engineering programs, which to me strongly suggested that the whistleblowers that Christopher Mellon was aware of actually were directly involved in some kind of crash retrieval or reverse engineering program, which is, you know, very, very intriguing to say the least. So it was interesting to me that Christopher Mellon is still quite optimistic, which he appeared to be in his comments at the conference. Essentially, though, the proof's going to be in the pudding. These whistleblower protections, etc., in the NDAA and IAA, you know, will they be sufficient? Only time will tell when the legislation eventually does get signed into law, uh, which will hopefully be fairly soon. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But even then, there will be, a, you know, over the following months, we'll start to see things gradually unfold from, from the point that it gets signed into law. Now, what what Mellon actually uh, did make a, a clear point of is something that I've been trying to point out ever since I did an initial read through of this legislation and also I touched on this earlier on as well the proposed legislation some months ago which was recently just had some overhauls you know it, it isn't making the point that the minute this legislation passes whistleblowers are going to start appearing on the news you know we're going to see people on podcasts or anything like that First of all, it won't be instant. It will be a slow pro process of all the dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's, etc. From a legal point of view, 
um, you know, the the legislation allows for this secure reporting and mechanism to report to the congressional committees in a secure setting. By secure, that means highly classified. And as I touched on earlier, there's actually specific requirements to make sure that none of that gets publicly publicly reported on. So it's a very secure system we're talking about here. And again, with good reason. If we're talking about programs dealing with top secret classified information, which could potentially be very harmful to national security if adversaries were able to get hold of it, I think that's quite a reasonable thing to include, as I mentioned a little bit earlier on. Now, at the end of the day, we may see a trickle-down effect of these little bits of information coming out, you know, down the line, off the back of these whistleblowers come forward in the in the classified setting. We may see comments from people who have attended the classified briefings, etc., um, like we have in the past. Um, you know, we may even see something in the reports, the upcoming reports from the um, the Arrow Office, um, which could potentially reference some of the things in a, in a highly redacted form probably so as always it's never a black and white thing with progress like this you know it's um it's not going to be a case of fling open the the lid of pandora's box as soon as the legislation passes but on the other hand it's unlikely to be a complete nothing burger as well it's just slow progress heading in the right direction and i think it was very important you know to hear this from chris the way chris was talking about this is that there's more reason to be optimistic than perhaps what you know some people have been have been you know discussing over the last couple of months so i think that's quite a positive sign the fact that chris is optimistic about how all how, how all this is moving and i don't think there's enough in the overhauls to suggest that there's a you know there would be a different point of view now now the overhauled language has been revealed so still room for optimism here and there was also some discussion about the the delayed report as well and sort of long story short apparently the report has not been handed in to congress yet that's something that again various people have been speculating that sources have said this and that and that this report has been handed in and then it's been sent back because uh, congress weren't happy with it and blah 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 apparently that's not the case it's just along the the path that this report has to go on before it gets handed in to congress in the executive branch there has been a lot of wrangling and as chris mellon pointed out that's not entirely unusual for a report of this nature and essentially it's just some hold-ups we were a bit spoiled really the last time there was a report due it dropped on the day so I think myself included, a lot of us were thinking, well, we're probably going to see the same again. It's just not worked out that way. The report apparently is, you know, there's been a lot of indications that the report has been moving through its its system, the path that it has to go on to get to Congress. But apparently it's not got to Congress yet. It's not that Congress received it and weren't happy with it. It's just that it's going through a bit of a convoluted process of, of getting fin finished off, basically. Is it disappointing there's a delay there? Yes, but all hope is not lost. It's not as though it's gone for good or anything like that. So important to make that distinction. Now then, this moves us on to the question and answer session with Christopher Mellon. And there's a lot of interesting questions there. And Chris did a great job of answering them. But what I'd like to focus on, if you all don't mind, is the very qu first question that was asked. And that was from somebody who you may be familiar with. Me. 
<laughs> yours truly so big thanks to jay and james for getting this question to uh, christopher mellon and um also big thanks to mr mellon and thank you very much for answering the question i, I really appreciate it and um mellon has stated many times now over the course of the last year or so and even before that uh, really but particularly recently that there are incredibly capable sensor systems that he has direct knowledge of through his work on the, on the inside as it were uh, chris wrote an article on the debrief entitled where why is the air force awol on the uap issue and in this article he details the incredibly capable sensor systems that are in possession of the us these include the space fence which can pick up an object the size of a marble in orbit and you know as well as many others as well and they're extremely capable sensor systems uh, you know like the global infrasound detection capabilities and whatnot i mean it's really worth a read for the whole article if you're interested in that side of things it's super fascinating even outside of the ufo topic how capable these sensor systems actually are um but bearing in mind that these are just the ones that chris can talk about you know there's there's obviously even more capable systems than that even more in-depth systems which are highly classified and um, we'll come back to all that in a little bit anyway but in a recent interview uh, mellon actually said that he tried to get a question asked at the uap congressional hearing about whether or not any objects had been detected in space or under the sea or under the water in, in general. Anomalous objects, that is, obviously. The reason I think that he's so keen to get that clarity is that that would definitively prove that we're not talking about foreign adversary junk, you know, balloons, drones, all the various other things that people generally discuss. If we're talking about something that does right angle turns under the water in instant acceleration, you know, you know, traveling into space, transmedium travel, potentially entering the Earth's atmosphere, maneuvering and then leaving the Earth's atmosphere again back into space, the possibility that that is adversarial tech becomes unbelievably slim. Now, when asked about this in a recent interview, Mellon said... I can't talk about any specific cases of objects being detected in space or underwater. Now, this got me thinking about the particular use of the wording there. I can't talk about any specific cases. Sounds to me a little bit like you may actually be aware of cases, but can't discuss it because of the capabilities of the sensor systems or whatnot that, you know, the cases may have involved. And, you know, the difficulty in discussing it without accidentally revealing some kind of capability, which are obviously highly classified, etc. Now, obviously, I'm not pushing for highly classified information. You know, I don't want to trip somebody up and have them reveal something they shouldn't do or anything like that. Absolutely not. I certainly don't want to damage the national security of the United States or the, the United Kingdom where I reside or any other country, um, you know, that wants to give an advantage to Russia or China or whatever it might be. You know, I definitely don't want to do any of that. But what I was interested in, in pushing for was whether or not Chris Mellon was actually aware of cases without specifically going into detail about, you know, the classified information or the, the capabilities of sensor systems, etc. But is Christopher Mellon directly aware personally of any of these cases because he, he, he seems to be really pushing us to look in those areas so my question read as follows 
You have recently helped bring attention to some of the incredible sensor systems the US has, such as the Space Fence. Is this because you think they are potentially good data sources, or are you personally aware of cases where UAP have been detected operating in space or underwater by these or other sensor systems? And um, it's quite a long question that with very specific wording. So I just want to say thanks very much to Jay for doing a fantastic job of reading that out and getting it to come across in the correct way. Um, nailed it. And, um, you know, so the first thing that, that happened was that Mr. Mellon, definitely shifted very uncomfortably in his chair for a few for a few seconds seemingly sort of racked his brains for how to answer the question and um he actually said i'll have to be very careful about how i answer that question and again just to be clear i, I didn't want to put chris mellon in an uh, you know an, an uncomfortable position or put him on the spot or anything like that certainly don't want to put him in a precarious position where he may accidentally let anything slip um, but that's never my intention. But what I did want to do here is to examine that area because it's an area that Chris himself has been directing people towards. It seems very significant. And I wonder, you know, where where that actually kind of, where the line is in terms of what we're talking about here. Are these just areas that are great to look at? You know, they collect data. Maybe they've already collected something. Or is there something a bit more to it? And Chris actually knows the sensor systems have detected things and perhaps has direct knowledge of that through his career. Essentially, he said that there have been cases of UAP detected in space and undersea and that basically all all but rules out adversarial tech. And I think essentially the classified nature of the sensors limits discussion a little bit. But I think personally, based on his answer and the, the things that he's mentioned previously, I think there's a strong possibility that he is himself aware of cases. And the question then becomes, is it viable that in his previous role, he may have actually become aware of something like this directly? And I don't, obviously Chris himself wasn't operating sensors. That's not how he would have learned about these cases. But is it possible that in the process of, you know, passing reports along the chain of command, etc., that something could have ended up on his desk or, you know, perhaps move over his desk during his work on the inside. And that kind of leads nicely on to something that um, I wanted to touch on as the next topic, which is John Ramirez uh, on a recent appearance on Podcast UFO. So John Ramirez is a retired GS-15 rank CIA officer who served within the agency, CIA, from... 1984 to 2009, serving with the Directorate of Science and Technology, the Directorate of Intelligence and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And he's done many interviews in the past. And I've, I've actually spoken to John at some length in the past, as some long-term listeners may remember. He provided some very important information about the legalities of what ex-intelligence officers can say, where the line is in terms of leaking information to researchers and the public, um, this was actually way back when I did a couple of episodes on time traveler hypothesis. And um, during that time, uh, I was able to speak with John uh, behind the scenes and verify certain things. And in the process of doing that, um, John provided certain background information. And I've known since then, and 
you know, even before that really, but particularly since then, that John is absolutely who he says he is, and he did indeed have a long and distinguished career within CIA. So he's legit, you know, let's just safe to say that he's absolutely legit. Now, Ramirez mentioned on Podcast UFO that he wrote a memorandum which was to be given to the briefer for the Secretary of Defence at the time, John Deutsch, and this memorandum was regarding a detection from the early warning system that the Russians had begun ballistic missile launch preparations after having seen objects on their sensor systems. Now, the Russians determined that it was not uh, an incoming US missile attack because they themselves have their own sensors and whatnot, and they determined that nothing had been launched from the US, but they began their own launch retaliation preparations because there was an object unidentified that had been detected now obviously this is the kind of thing that the secretary of defense needs to know about and john ramirez was the lead author for that memorandum and my point here is that john ramirez is clearly telling us here that while working for the cia he generated a report based on what sensor systems had detected and that that was then used to brief the Secretary of Defence. So, considering Mellon was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defence for Intelligence, I think it's safe to assume that, you know, it's very possible that he could have easily had a report like that land on his desk, or perhaps move across his desk as it's made its way to a, another destination, and that may have been somebody else. But perhaps Mellon had the task of receiving memorandums like this and briefing his senior officials. The point is... The, the big point here is that, according to John Ramirez, and I don't think there's any reason to disbelieve him, there is a precedent for this type of thing. Highly capable, highly classified sensor systems, you know, detecting objects and reports being generated to brief senior intelligence officials. And Ramirez also goes on to talk about, years later uh, from that incident, um, another incident in the early 2000s, uh, happens where orbs are actually uh, detected by what he describes as certain optical sensors over Russian territory. And John, within his department in the CIA, then attempted to determine whether or not these orbs that were being detected were stealth Russian aircraft, using what he describes as a plasma stealth generator. However, it was determined that that's not what these objects were, and that a working group had to be formed. And John refers to this as an interagency working group to try to identify what these orbs were. And the working group consisted of what John calls the big five sisters of intelligence, which is the NSA, CIA, um, DIA, NRO, and NGA. And he describes meetings with all of these agencies and the contractors involved to determine what these actual things were once they'd been picked up on the sensor system. And interestingly, John also goes on to talk about how they didn't have a direct line of communication open with the Russians on these detections, or at least even if they had the line open, they, they certainly didn't tell them about it, as the Russians were already aware uh, of these. And this was known by information coming from agents working within russia that the russians were already aware of these incursions and they were concerned about it at a very high level within the russian government and despite 
there being these lines of communication open to communicate about ballistic missile tests, etc., to prevent any misunderstandings, John claims that UAP detections were not communicated to the Russians because often they actually collected these, you know, detections of these objects from highly sensitive platforms. And to admit that they have these systems in operation over Russian territory would obviously give away some of the capabilities and they're not going to want to do that. And, um, you know, I hate to say it, but this brings me to the realisation as to why many of these cases, you know, of, of UAP being detected may well remain classified for this very reason. You know, sources and methods, here it is again, you know, and there's a crossover there isn't there but like is it is it justified to completely um you know shut down transparency altogether i don't think that that's true at all i think there's a certain amount of transparency that the public are owed on this topic um but having said that i do understand you can't fling open pandora's box for all of these kinds of reasons and john's talked about how there was a, a big shift in what was being detected when something called multispectral sensors started to be used and these were systems that could apparently see four bands of infrared four separate color bands of infrared uh, apparently they have eight band sensors and all kinds of things these days but john's talked about how this working group the interagency working group went on for some time and actually once the work um you know had actually been done uh, the, the results of this work, in his opinion, were passed across to ORSAP. So very interesting that we're, you know, we're not exactly talking about something that is corroborated by multiple people at this point. It's just coming from John, but absolutely fascinating to think of essentially a group that worked on anomalous detections from infrared systems in space and generating reports for the Secretary of Defense on these things. And when you consider all of that, I would say, you know, it's highly likely in, in in my opinion that chris mellon would have at least been aware of some of these cases personally during this time and probably can re can't reveal exactly what the details of those cases are because of the sensor systems and, and whatnot and, and where the detections actually took place and things like that but you can see why i think there's a link there and when i asked about that question that's what i was basically getting at I think you can also see there why Chris Mellon had to be so careful about answering the question because it would seem that you know he's not even allowed to personally to mention that he's personally aware of the cases. He was very clear to not make that distinction uh, in his answer, but he he did insist that these cases did happen. But he can't. I would have suggested he probably can't say directly that he is personally aware and, and go into any details whatsoever and i think what he's trying to do is direct us all to get people like scott bray like senior officials within the dod to just admit that there have been cases of detections of anomalous objects in orbit or under the sea or under water in general because that would be possible to do without giving any details of the systems that's, I think, the question that needs to be asked. I think it's a bit unrealistic to expect details and the publishing of images being captured by these sensor systems or any data whatsoever, because as soon as they start to get into revealing any cap capabilities of these systems to adversaries, that's just never going to happen. But I think a big thing to try and push for is just the acknowledgement of anomalous objects being detected in space or underwater, a transmedium. 
you know, in particular. But, you know, even just if, if anything displaying clearly anomalous characteristics has been detected in space or underwater, it massively reduces the chances of, of any prosaic explanation. And I want to see that because it, it really does move along the conversation. And uh, as I remember saying on the podcast in somewhat comedic northern fashion some time ago, if you pick up objects coming in from space, mooching about in the Earth's atmosphere and then scarpering, it's probably not a drone from China. And um, Ramirez also said a couple of other interesting points as well, like the CIA um, only operate abroad like MI6 do, and that would explain the the well potentially explain the agency that was blanked out in the redacted UAP task force report there was a three letter agency blanked out there and i would suggest it could well be cia and the cia would be if the cia was included there it would essentially confirm that the cia is actively engaged in foreign efforts in in this area in in, you know foreign countries and they probably don't want to do that so that was quite an interesting little side point but a really big one to finish up on is non-sonar asw detection so very interesting point that john mentioned again on the same podcast appearance here he was dropping some bombs on that one and um you know it was about how an object may potentially have been um, you know, detected traveling underwater. And obviously this links to what I was talking about with the Chris Mellon uh, question as well. And John said uh, that there's something called a non-sonar anti-submarine warfare detection capabilities, so anti-submarine warfare ASW. And he says that this information is widely available on the internet about these non, non-acoustic ASW systems and that that seems to be perhaps a likely candidate i would say for having picked up uap activity john says it's an area that he can't address at all other than to say that there are ways to pick up and detect objects moving underwater without the use of sonar and again the trouble with this is if the navy considers it to be highly sensitive as john suggests are we ever going to see any data or any reports that we can actually do anything you know, about these undersea uh, detections and the answer is probably no for the foreseeable future however what can be done and i think this is what christopher mellon is directing us to do is ask the question are you aware of you know anything being detected in space or underwater you don't need to go into details but is that something that exists within the data now obviously mellon can't talk about specifics you know, and, and even if he if he can mention, you know, a little bit of some things, he's going to be very wary because of walking that line of accidentally mentioning something that's classified like live on stage, being live streamed on the internet. It's it's not an easy one to navigate. Um but I think in a congressional hearing, if we do see those happening again, it would be an excellent question to ask and i think that's the reason that christopher mellon was so keen to try to get that question asked didn't end up being asked in the end and uh, it's a shame that it didn't but i think that is the big i think it's such an important question you know you don't have to reveal any capabilities of where things were detected what was detected the data i mean obviously look it would be great to get that stuff but even without any of that 
just an acknowledgement that these incredibly capable systems have picked up things in space or underwater, clearly anomalous movements being detected. Just a yes or no as to whether they've been picked up would, I think, move the conversation along quite dramatically. And it's also just as a very final point, the final point, um, interesting to consider that Lou Elizondo still has a current role on advising Space Force on classified matters relating to UAP. And um, as uh, Bob Pliskin put in his, his article for the debrief, quote, with countless classified sensor systems in Earth's orbit, the Space Force is literally the eye in the sky. If something anomalous and weird is going on up there, it stands to reason that the newest military branch has data on it. Unquote. So again, the Air Force got some incredible sensor systems. Space Force has got some incredible sensor systems. I think we need to be asking the question, have these systems picked up anything weird in space or under the water? Maybe rephrase that slightly. Weird might not be the best way to ask the question, but I'm sure you, you get where I'm going with that. So that's about all we've got time for, for for now. So hopefully that's been interesting to figure out what's been going on over the course of the last few weeks. Quite a lot of uh, things to keep an eye on there. And as always, if you've enjoyed listening to, to the podcast here and you've listened up to this point, you clearly are a hardcore listener of the podcast. You've made it all the way to the end of the episode. So thank you very much. And um, if you don't already, please consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. It's, uh, it's basically the way that I don't have any advertisements on the podcast whatsoever. Uh, I don't want to go down that route. I would much prefer um, to, to avoid adverts and things like that, disrupting the flow of, of the show. So Patreon allows me to receive support from listeners who are in a position to, to, to do so and in a way that allows me to run the show in the way that I want to run the show without adverts and whatnot. So huge thanks to all the Patreon supporters, and uh, I really appreciate all the support. And if you don't want to support on Patreon or you're not in a position to do so, that's absolutely fine. The show will always be free. So don't worry about that. I'm not going anywhere. And what you can do is is leave the podcast a review if you do have a few seconds to do so just go to the top of whatever streaming platform you use and just a five star review if you've enjoyed the podcast would make a big difference it helps with all the algorithms and all that side of things apparently where it recommends the show to other people who may have an interest in the ufo topic and um, that would be very much appreciated so that's basically it for now i'm going to go and uh, carry on with the rest of my day and thanks very much for listening. It's great to uh, to get comments from people and things as well. So do always feel free to give me a shout on Twitter at UFO Thinker and um, drop me an email or a DM or whatever and let me know your thoughts on what I've been discussing on today's episode. And until next time, take it easy, stay curious, and I'll catch you in the next episode. UFO Thinker Podcast.